Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 18th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all on tonight. And uh, we've got an exciting show here in about uh, 20 minutes. We're going to talk to Mr. Steve Seisinger. Um, He's been on the show multiple times before, but this time we're going to delve deep into education issues. And not don't think we're sending you to educator staff development. This is going to be more that intersection of politics where we're talking about teacher shortages and workforce development and school calendars and daily schedules and um, uh, the academic freedom in the classroom. So it's going to be more of a political bent of education issues. So, so don't worry there. And Steve's always such a great, exciting guest anyway that it'll be a great discussion. Uh, but until then, we want to get right back to what we know best, our home state, Georgia, and talk about first the Senate race, and then we'll get to what we can after that. And so let's um, you know, start off talking about the Senate race. And when we had planned to talk about this last week, we were going to talk about tightening polls. And now some new polls have come out that show that maybe the race is not as tight as it was. So polls are what polls are, Catherine. What do you make of the state of the race right now between Senator Raphael Warnock and challenger Herschel Walker? Well, if we can believe the polls, and, you know, I'm I'm uh, uh, hesitant about that sometimes, especially with the new uh, registrations that we are aware of. Um, anyway, but if, if the if the polls are accurate, um, it looks like uh, Reverend Senator Dr. Warnock <laughs> is um, moving up in the polls and. Uh, having a i mean it's still it's still going to be tight but it's a much it's a, a less close uh race than it was even 10 days ago if we can believe those polls yeah and i will point out that one of the polls that really showed a tightening race and it may even been a, a walker lead was insider advantage now one thing i do have a problem is that fox 5 somehow uses them as their pollster, making it seem more official. But um, I think it was uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager pointed out some uh, problems they've had in polling. And then another thing with that is they also had the Libertarian candidate getting four points. And if the Libertarian candidate got four points, that would be a major factor for if you finish this race on Election Day. Tim, what's your take on just the overall state of the horse race? Uh, I believe Warnock is starting to pull a little bit ahead. I don't think he's six points ahead. I think he's closer to that three-point lead that 538 has him at in um, polling, um, compilation polling. Um, but uh, some some of the things that this 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 poll mentioned in the breakdown is very interesting. Uh, obviously, Warnock has uh, consolidated the Democratic vote. Um, as a matter of fact, he's doing better among Democrats, a little better than Walker is among Republicans. But where Warnock is really putting it on him is with independent voters, a, a double-digit lead. If he holds all Democrats and has that big of a lead with independent voters, 
and, and I think a lot of these are conservative independents that live in the suburbs where the real election will be decided. The election will be decided. I think it's going to be very hard for for Walker to win that race uh, without at least splitting independent voters if they come out if they come out to vote. That's that's, that's going to be tough for Walker. Uh, being 14 points behind with independence, um, all of the things being equal. Yes, and I think you're mentioning the Quinnipiac poll, which we did we right. did dig into the crosstabs because we had access to them. It had Raphael Warnock getting, I want to say, like 31% of the white vote, which given the um, the diversifying of Georgia, you don't have to get as much of the white vote as you used to have but we always said if you could get if a Democrat could get into the 30s, they'd be in pretty solid shape. And so he's got the diversifying yeah. electorate, and he's getting that over that magic 30 number with white voters, which is big. He was winning independence. He was doing better among Democrats. Um, not to skip over to the governor's race yet because we're just not ready for that yet. But there was still that Kemp Walker. Oh, I'm sorry, Kemp Warnock voter. That exists, and that's, frankly, good for the incumbents. And when we're talking about the Senate race, that's good for the Democrats. Um, so all that's important. Tim, I want to follow back up on you. Um, uh, from my understanding, you may know a little bit more about that Quinnipiac poll than Catherine and I do. You knew about mm-hmm. it even earlier than it came out. Tell us what you can. Right. Well, I mean, um, lo- looking at some of this stuff, um, 94, or, or actually in, in the U.S. Senate race, 96% of the voters, uh, the respondents in this poll, said their mind was made up. Only 4% uh, are saying that they are even persuadable to change. That's not much. Uh, was still no, not at all. Of time. A lot of people, you know, traditionally make up their minds at the end in a close race. That doesn't seem to be happening here. Another thing that I think is very, very striking, they they uh, ask about, a, you know, um, favorables and unfavorables. And in the U.S. Senate, Warnock's overall favorables are 52% and 44% unfavorable. Herschel Walker has a 40% favorability rating and a 51% unfavorable. That is not a winning formula if everybody comes out to vote that's supposed to vote. Another thing um, that that really wasn't in this poll, but I'd like to mention it here, right now Warnock has over three times the amount of cash on hand as Walker. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be very, very important down the stretch, uh, especially with uh, mass media. Um, so I, I, I just don't see where Walker is making up any ground. Uh, a lot of people thought he might, and I, and I did. I thought he might make up some ground with black voters. And, and, David, you had mentioned that Governor Kemp is actually doing a point better than Herschel Walker is, which is shocking because Governor Kemp is white, his opponent is black, and Herschel Walker is black. <laughs> but, but he's not – and the issue has to be Herschel Walker, the way that this is working. Uh, and the is he ready for prime time? And apparently enough of the voters are saying that he's not, and, and, and it's really hurting him. Another thing that happened with this poll, um, for the first time in a Georgia statewide race, we are seriously looking at abortion as an issue. And that's not going to favor the Republicans if that is an issue. A major issue at all, and and it is. It's in double digit uh, 
even even among independents, that is their third most important issue. Um, that 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 might explain one of the reasons why Walker is so far behind Warnock with independence, and I think the other reason being, like I said, Herschel Walker. So I just don't see anywhere, maybe you do, David, uh, you've looked at all of this too, but I just don't see anywhere that shows that Herschel Walker is possibly winning this race at all and that this poll could be wrong. Do you see anything? I think he's just dependent on a national wave. Um, you know, I guess the, not the theory might have been like maybe he didn't need a national wave, and his That's not there. personal uh, personal profile and popularity would have carried him over. But um, you know, there's just so many people that a are not going to base their vote on somebody's acumen at football, um, are also maybe not pre inclined to vote for a Republican candidate. Um, Really, a lot of voters under, say, 45 just know the legend of Herschel Walker. They don't really know Herschel Walker, you know, when you know, when he was in his Georgia prime. And so that didn't do me well either. And so now they're getting reintroduced to him, and that's his biggest problem. You said he's not ready for prime time, Tim. He's not ready for 3 o'clock in the morning on the static pattern. <laughs> um, it's just bad. Now, Catherine – um, these polls have kind of moved around here and there. And some people said when they, you know, they gotten tightened up and maybe even Herschel Walker had a lead that uh, Raphael Warnock was not, um, you know, using sharp enough attacks or I thought maybe using too many attacks and not so much Raphael Warnock because I think he's in a tricky position as, but Democratic surrogates using too many line of attacks. What do you think about how Herschel Walker has been framed to this period by um, his opposition. Well, I, um, you know, I watch a lot of television, uh, both uh, streaming and uh, regular, you know, cable uh, network television. And I haven't seen a lot of negative ads. Um, And the ones that I have seen are not vicious, like some of the ones we've seen in the past. They're, really sort of uh, noting some of the discrepancies in what um, Mr. Walker has said and, you know, some of the, a few snips of him talking. Um, I don't think they're going to be perceived as um, that negative where they, where they cast a shadow on uh, Reverend Warnock Senator Warnock or, um, you know, the Democratic uh, Party and their surrogates. I don't, I don't feel that they're that um, vicious. I mean, the ones that against, we'll talk about this later, but the ones against Stacey Abrams, I think, are more dramatic and more uh, pointed than the ones against Herschel Walker. That's my, that's from what I've seen. Yeah, and I don't think that that's, the, I don't think that it's like a, blowback thing because they've been so vicious and my thing was and i still don't think there's a major problem because there's time to fix it but there's three kind of three lines of attack besides the partisan you know this is how he stands on the issues um which is what the core of politics should be about but it's herschel walker can't tell the truth herschel walker has a history of violence particularly with against women and herschel walker's not smart I mean, I saw a sign in Cherokee County, possibly the most Republican county when it comes to percentage of the vote and sheer number of Republican voters, and it said Herschel Walker, and I'm going to put up a PG-13 rating here, is a dumbass. Uh, I mean, it was – and so you've got these three lines of attack that you could go after, and I'll be honest. I think I would go after the third one because, honestly, the lying – I'm not so sure that Herschel a lot of times knows when he's lying about being in the FBI. He may not know that when he gets the little deputy sheriff's badge from Cobb County that that didn't make him a real police. So I would stick to that other one. Herschel Walker is just simply not smart enough to be in the U.S. Senate. 
should have kept him from being the Republican nominee, but the Republican Party cannot save themselves from themselves because they repeatedly nominate inferior candidates. And I don't know why they're doing this, but that's not our problem now. We're to the general election, and he's just simply not smart enough to be in the U.S. Senate. And ought to be that cut and dry, and that ought to cap him at about 40 to 42 percent of the vote if you effectively put that message out to the voters. There would still be 40 to 42 percent that some of them wouldn't believe the message, or some of them would believe it, just wouldn't care. They'll say Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton will just lead him around, and he'll vote however they tell him to, and they wouldn't care. But that's where I'd put my attack from now until Election Day. Um, Tim, your thoughts on those three lines of attack and where you put your emphasis? Uh, you, you know, you made, you, you made a good point, David, that um, perhaps um, especially surrogates were attacking Walker a little bit too much because basically Herschel opened his mouth and attacked himself with, with no help. <laughs> From anyone else, so um, I, I I don't n- know if the attacks from this point forward on Herschel Walker should be anything other than you know he's just not ready to be a U.S. senator, and I think. The fact that he lived in Texas all these years is very fair game. Voters really don't like people that they think moved in as a matter of convenience. We see that up in Pennsylvania with Oz. I I think that is a a fair line of attack on Walker. Uh, Otherwise... I, I I think, and I saw a commercial today. I don't know if y'all seen it yet, and it's just Rev, um, Senator Warnock sitting there talking to the camera. Um, by himself for the entirety of the commercial, and talking, you know, mentioning the attacks on him, and setting the record a little bit straight, and about what he's done as a senator and what he wants to continue to do as a senator. It was a very positive piece. I, I think him going positive like that this late in the game might show where he thinks the race might be or where it's heading. Uh, I, you know, Catherine, you mentioned watching a lot, a lot of television and stuff, and and I think you may see even less attacks on Walker. But I think the attacks on Reverend Warnock are going to pick up. They're going to have to. If the race is where we think it's heading, and we all three seem to be thinking that the trajectory of this race is now heading in in one direction, um, I, I I just think that's what we may be looking at from this point forward as far as far as attacks. And, Catherine, let's go ahead and flip this thing, and then uh, the two attacks that seem to be the main ones against Raphael Warnock by the Walker campaign and surrogates are he votes with President Biden too much, and that's led to inflation and high gas prices, and particularly the gas prices. That whole thing's disintegrating, and then inflation slowly coming down as well. And the second one is kind of a new thing that – or that they've really emphasized more. So I think he said it before, but they really emphasized it is Raphael Warnock focuses too much on race, and I'm going to be somebody that's more colorblind, and Raphael Warnock's just going to pit everybody else against, against each other because of race. How effective do you think either of those attacks are going to be, or is Herschel Walker going to have to find Plan C? I think he's going to have to find Plan C. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly don't think that the attacks on, um, like, gas prices are going to be effective if we continue to see this, uh, you know, lowering tax, lowering gas prices as we get closer to the election. And also, I think that 
there's been a pretty good uh, messaging campaign around why some of those gas prices are high and that they're high everywhere, not just in this country. So I don't know how many people hear that, but I think there has been a pretty effective campaign around that. Um, and, and inflation and actually, jobs, they don't you know, even have to hear it when when gas but, prices are two eighty three, and there, there's a, there's a pump, you know, within four miles of my house that's two eighty three. That's just not a good attack when when it's changed. But I want to go ahead right, and exactly. um, switch over to switch over to our guest now and welcome back into the Kudzu Vine for now multiple times, Mr. Steve Sizinger. Welcome, Steve. How you guys doing tonight? Good. Oh, good to have you on, Steve. And I guess it's afternoon for you, but um, we'll take it all for the West Coast. Yeah, <laughs> sun's still shining out here, but I figure most of the people listening, it's nighttime there. So I just figured I'd try to make the mental adjustment in my own head. <laughs> <laughs> good enough. Now, now, we're lucky. We've still got sunshine this time of day in the south, but our, but our friends probably up in the northeast that, that, that listen to us, it may be dark. Um, but, Steve, uh, um, I wanted to start in right off because we've already told our listeners we're not going to talk as much California politics or even hardcore electoral politics. We're going to look specifically as your career as an educator and your, get your thoughts on some education issues. And so let's just start out there. Just tell us about you know, how long you've been a teacher, where you've been a teacher, those experiences about that professional background. Sure. Uh, well, I'm now just starting my 26th year uh, teaching at a high school district in suburban Los Angeles. Uh, it's actually the school district that I went to as a student and where I met my wife. So it's hometown, so to speak, although I don't personally live there anymore because the town where I grew up was sort of middle class when I was a kid. Now it's a very expensive uh, zip code, to say the least. And believe me, you cannot live there on a teacher's salary. So uh, we moved we moved a town or two over. But uh, I've taught social studies there and coached uh, track and field off and on for 26, actually including coaching, 28 years. And I've uh, seen a lot of changes even here. You know, a lot of people think living in Los Angeles County that a lot of the issues they're reading about online and seeing about on TV – that a blue state and a blue county would be immune from those things, and trust me when I tell you they are not. Yeah, we are more interconnected than we realize, and we're gonna, I'm going to be asking questions, and I may chime in because, as everybody knows, I'm an educator. This is my 29th year, most likely my full-time year, last full-time year, um, but, but I'm in the middle of it, K-12, and then also I'm teaching at colleges. Um, so – Let's kind of start off with the teacher shortages. Now, I know, and you probably know too, this was not a problem that COVID caused. It is a problem that COVID has exacerbated like everything else, but the teacher shortages were coming. Um, how have you seen both on the West Coast and maybe anywhere else that some school systems are handling poorly and well the teacher shortages in their county? Well, I will say that is one place where L.A. County, thankfully, at least my part of L.A. County, has been somewhat immune from that, somewhat. What has changed is it used to be that an opening would come up and we'd have 60 people applying for it, and those days are gone. So, But what I'm seeing in other districts, I think most famously, I'm sure your, your listeners know this, was the uh, bill that was passed in Florida where just with no credentialing, with no process, just, oh, you served in the military, you could be a teacher now. And that was a very ham-fisted approach. But when they did it, I knew why they did it. They did he, most more he than they, uh, they did it to give themselves a veneer of when people rightfully complained, hey, do these people have any qualifications to be a teacher? They could come back with, why do you hate veterans? Just pure political <laughs> posturing, nothing to do with actual, look, I, my dad was a veteran. My grandfather was a World War One veteran. But that did not make him qualified to be a heart surgeon. It didn't make him qualified to be an auto mechanic. And it doesn't necessarily make them qualified to be a math teacher. But I think the core of – and you're spot on by saying that it isn't something that just happened overnight or something that just happened because of COVID. It was coming before that. And I was just talking – it's funny. I was just talking about this with someone the other day when they asked – 
you know, how, you know, 25 years, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm surprised, you know, that if you'll see very many of those 25-year life servants, the next generation. Because when I got into it in 1997, we knew going in, and, and you're in about the same tenure range that I am in terms of being in the profession. We knew we were never going to get rich. We knew that, you know, best case scenario, we were going to be part of the middle class. But we also knew that people genuinely appreciated and genuinely had a sense of respect for our profession. And so that intrinsic uh, pay, if you will, that you may never be a millionaire, but at least people will look you in the eye and think that you've done good work. If anything has taken a bigger hit and COVID played a part in it, but COVID's not the only thing that happened here. Uh, as someone who teaches social studies, uh, to my friends to my left, they think, you know, I'm not, I'm not being uh, aggressive enough in teaching the truth. And to my friends on the right, I'm part of the woke mob. Yeah. There's no way in my perfection, because I teach you of government, there's no way for me to win, right? So if you're a young teacher and you're not getting paid that good, and now you're getting dumped on on top of it, gee, all of a sudden being an assistant manager at Enterprise Rent-A-Car at the airport for 80% of the same paycheck looks really, really good. Yeah, and you mentioned tenure now. If anybody's listening and thinking about the profession, I would um, recommend you Google a uh, video car on YouTube called the million dollar wagon and it'll explain to you what a good teacher pension can do for you after you finish and it is um quite a benefit but um i don't think that message is getting out because enrollment in um education programs has been declining for probably close to 10 years or more now um steve you taught me something when you're talking about florida you said they i didn't know ron DeSantis went by they as his pronoun because we know he's pushing all of everything in Florida. <laughs> yeah, I got jeez, I, I might have insulted him. I feel so bad about that. I oh golly, oh Ron, yeah. my bad buddy. You, 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 know, you, you and me, you and me are just but, like this. Yeah, but but um, seriously, on that, I will tell you the thing I found the most problematic about the bill was not so much the military part, and I agree what he was doing. Um, but, you know, you did have to have some hours in college and a major. But instead, if you were the spouse of someone who was in the military, what is that about? Just being married to someone that you think might have a background now gives you a background? You get it through osmosis, sleeping next to that person at night? I thought that was the most bizarre portion of that entire bill. Um, but but with the teacher shortage, as we know, it's a complex situation that's going to have to be you know, a lot of different solutions and raising pay is probably going to be one of them um, to, to cut that off and probably some esteem. Now that's what lets us flow into academic freedom. I know I sent you the stuff, and you probably saw it anyway. There was an English teacher in Oklahoma that did not assign controversial books, did not give out copies of controversial books. She simply gave out information about how those students on their phone, on their iPad, on their computer could download and get a free account from the Brooklyn Public Library to access any book in the Brooklyn Public Library. And that could have been Little Red Riding Hood. That could have been the Holy Bible. That could have been anything they chose. Now, they do have some books that are on the top ten most controversial, uh, most banned book list for this year. But I looked it up on the Oklahoma library system, and Oklahoma actually owns all ten of those books in both digital and print version, if you want to check them out in Oklahoma, not Brooklyn. So I thought that was kind of um, ironic when they fired this teacher and apparently wanting to prosecute this teacher, wanting to pull this teacher's teaching license. This teacher's been threatened, um, and it is the most horrific case of impugning and restricting academic freedom I've ever heard in American education. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are uh, I'm disgusted, and we were just talking 20 seconds ago or so about why there's a teacher shortage. Boom, there it is, right there. The problem is so many of the people who are in decision-making uh, roles in education 
quite honestly, know absolutely nothing about education. See, one of the sinister things about elected school boards, and I, I'm not saying elected school boards themselves are sinister, but one of the things about the election process for most school boards is in many states it's a nonpartisan election. So you don't know that you are getting somebody who's going to be the type of person that writes policy to put someone in, you know, in dire threat of losing their credential over just offering books to their kids because their website just says they want to get back to classic education. Who doesn't want that? So, look, one of the problems is, is that's one place where I will say the right is 15 steps ahead of the left, which is getting people elected to these local offices. And it's not just school boards. It's city councils. It's county commissions and the like. Uh, look at what DeSantis, we just brought him up earlier, my, my, my buddy Ron, he they, he they Ron, uh, look what they did with local school board elections uh, last month in Florida. And the ones they didn't sweep, he just suspended the school board members he didn't like and replaced them with his cronies. So you get that kind of politicization, I can speak that word, of school boards, and then you get these kind of policies. I remember distinctly, because right when I started teaching, I'd always taught AP government. I'd not taught AP U.S. history until about 10 years ago, that there was a movement in Texas to possibly strip the teaching of AP U.S. history, because this was before the whole woke mob nonsense. Uh, it was just, oh, it's not affirmative enough of the American exceptionalism, da 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 Well, the head of the school board of Texas at that time was not a historian, mind you was not an educator. He was a dentist. Now, I didn't go to dental school, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that U.S. history is not a subject matter requirement when you get your dental certification. So you get people like that who make these kind of policies, and here we are with things like we're seeing in Oklahoma, things like we're seeing in Texas, things like we're seeing in Florida. Yeah, and um, definitely, I'll be fair. If I had a cavity, I'd probably go to Dr. Isaac, not you, Steve. But we're talking about education policy. You've got to listen to the educators like yourself. Um, but let's talk about that because you mentioned Texas, but we talked about – there's articles talking about other places, even if they keep AP as a class, but then the restrictions are on um, you know, exposure to content, and then the AP national test – Test on the content because it has to be assessing what those students would learn at college to give them college credit if they get a three, four, or five on the test. That's going to be a problem to effectively prepare those kids and make the AP classes moot. Um, what's that going to cause if they were to, you know, institute that in mass in a lot of red states? Well, it really is a bigger problem than even that, and I'll explain why. Because sure. when you have, again, these people who are not qualified to really understand the concepts that they're legislating on, what they'll do is they'll make these blanket policies that are nonspecific, and then as a history teacher in that state, there may be a concept that's essential to the AP and is not anywhere even in the same you know, area code of critical race theory, but you're going to be reluctant to teach it because it's not whether you know whether it is connected in any way to critical race theory. It's whether three of the five yahoos who are on your county or city school board think it is. And as we well know, to too many of those people, anything dealing with race is critical race theory because they're not learned enough in the content nor are they intellectually curious enough to appreciate the distinction. And so now you find teachers, and I already start to see this a little bit, uh, not so much in my community, but with my fellow history teachers, you get teachers who start to self-censor because they're not sure if wherever their school board is going to choose to, to, to draw that line, they don't know whether they're crossing it or not. So, for example, I assign in my class, uh, a reading of Frederick Douglass in the wake of the Dred Scott decision. And he basically talks about the fact that the history of 
suborning racism in America can no longer be hidden. That up to this point, respectable society thought that racism was just something that a very small, very vocal minority of the country believed in, but now the entirety of how much it's in, it's, it's in the government and it's in the courts uh, can no longer be ignored after the Dred Scott decision. I have no doubt in my mind that my school board won't care that I assign that, but I have no doubt in my mind that if I was in the county my mom grew up in in Texas, that they would very much think I was teaching critical race theory. Yeah, and I don't know if you talk about the 4th of July speech, you know, what is a slave, or what is 4th of July to a slave? That's a tough speech. Oh, yeah. A fair speech for the time. But it's a tough speech, and then you have the thing, if you actually got in front of this play, you go, hey, Frederick Douglass, he helped found the Republican Party. You know, you're speaking out against a Republican, even though he has this right, this speech that they probably think Colin Kaepernick would have written, you know, or somebody else that they don't like. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, it, um, when you really get into it, it is super complicated and that's why you've got to not just want to heal it with bumper stickers and, and black and white solutions. And I don't mean race black and white. I mean, black and white decision-making with no gray. Um, well, I do have more questions possibly for you, particularly about scheduling of the school day, but I know Catherine and Tim also have questions. And so I'm going to, um, Pass it to Catherine first and then to Tim. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on tonight, Steve. We really appreciate it. I love this perspective um, on education. Tim, uh, Tim and David are going to be surprised because I'm not asking the question I said I was going to ask. <laughs> um, you talk a lot about school boards, but we're hearing more and more about parents getting um, more involved in um, curriculum and you know, libraries and all this stuff. And how how hard is that on the teachers? Like, it seems to me that, I mean, I don't know. I, I had an, an unusual, I should say, unique educational experience growing up. So I don't think my parents ever would have considered challenging anything that my teachers were teaching. But is that really a problem now? It is. And uh, to be honest with you, it is everywhere because all it takes is you could be in the bluest city or the bluest county or the reddest city or the reddest county. All it takes is a gadfly or two, and they tend to, like, moths to a light bulb to these kind of gatherings, school board meetings, city councils, what have you. No, we're seeing it a little bit. Uh, my school district had a big controversy. It actually made the national news uh, maybe half a dozen years ago. Because uh, one of our middle school social studies teacher was going through the early part of world history and was doing the foundation of the, the era where all you know the a number of the large world religions was found, were founded and taught not in a proselytizing way, mind you, but just in an informational way what the five pillars of Islam were. And we had a couple parents go absolutely bat you know what because I don't know what the profanity rules are here bat you know what crazy about it wanted to get the teacher in trouble wanted to get the district in trouble um and again this wasn't they were not on prayer rugs in class this was right. here or what the five History. pillars of islam are right it was just yeah it was it, it was informational it was not like i said it was not proselytizing by any stretch or measure so we're already seeing that and the problem is well not the problem I, I, the, the conundrum is for a school board <laughs> Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. But the conundrum <laughs> for a school board is school board elections, I don't know if this is the case where you all are, but in Southern California, we're just starting to change this, which is well overdue. School board elections and city council elections in most of the Southwest used to be on a completely different schedule than the rest of elections. So, you know, your normal election cycle is even-numbered years in November. Your school board election would be in the off year in June. So turnout would be unbelievably low. So you tend to play to the activists in your town right. more than you maybe ordinarily would because you know even in a city of 23,000 registered voters, only 2,000 are going to show up, and you know they're going to show up. So there is a little bit of that. And I think another thing that happened is, and this is definitely a COVID-related item, is that COVID really activated that parent community. 
because that parent community wanted the schools completely open with no masks. Uh, like, if we closed school, I don't know when it happened where you guys were. For us, I remember vividly, it was March 13th, the Friday. Yep. That's Friday the 13th. That's when we were told, we're done. Starting Monday, we're done. Uh, these folks wanted the thing reopened on, like, March 18th, right? And they got organized. And so that organization that was devoted to All Matters COVID, now that COVID policy, at least in our school district, has largely been set aside, there's no masking anymore, uh, there's there's quarantine if you actually test positive, uh, but that's about it at this point, which isn't that much different than being sick with anything else. Now that the COVID thing's gone by the wayside here, that group has kind of stayed organized on matters of curriculum, uh, be it the whole critical race thing or uh, also the appropriateness of sex education. And, and not only am I a teacher, but I'm also a parent. My oldest child is trans feminine. So seeing what came out in Virginia yesterday, where now we're being told that in the state of Virginia, if you're a teacher, you cannot properly identify your student by the gender that they, that they identify as unless their parents give you permission to do it. That's strictly driven by this minority of very vocal parents. And so it is a problem because school boards are going to be, tend to be reactive. Because, again, small turnout elections, they've got to play to whoever's the loudest and in their face, and and we saw that in COVID. How many schools reopened before there were any vaccines available without masks, do you, right? Do you and think also so, the fact that parents were um, sort of on hand during a lot of the um, virtual education that they got a little taste of what was being taught and so that they became more they felt like they were more informed and then felt like they had to be more vocal i think that may i think that has something to do with it uh i think also more than anything else uh it put matters of education kind of front and center and so as with anything else, it's the same way everybody suddenly became an epidemiologist there for about six months. If there's an issue that's set in front of, front and center in the public conversation, you better have an opinion on it, right? So I think that played a part in it as well. Uh, I think the other thing is there was already a certain level of tension in place, a certain level of anger in place. The politics of our time did nothing to assuage that at all, as we know. Um, thank you, Donald Trump. And so mm-hmm. there's just this there's a great line in a, in a formerly known as Dixie Chicks, now just the Chick song called Easy Silence about anger plays on every station. And I think that we had a good solid spell of that, and it's spilled over into my profession now where everybody's got an opinion and everybody feels the need to be mad. And so whatever in your community is the thing that is going to be that touchstone, whether it is how you treat your LGBT students, or how you talk about race, particularly in a predominantly white district, which is what I work in. You start to see these things pile up, and people man their stations, and and now we just, it's just, it's the same political fights we've been having, you know, every election cycle, except now it's it's spilled over into this realm as well. I have one more question, and it's kind of random, but I know in the past that because Texas has such a large school, large number of school districts and students that they had a lot of impact on and influence on textbooks. Is that still the case? It is. Or has that Um, changed? No, it is still to a certain extent. Um, That was really bad about 10 years ago because they completely changed their social studies standards. And you don't want to, so what a lot of a lot of textbook companies did is kind of tried to thread the needle. Um, now the good thing is, the one thing is I, that two things happened. One is bad, but winds up being good in this context, which is that was right about the time that a lot of school districts started wondering why they were still spending a lot of money on paper books in this technological right. era. So textbook adoption. We are just to give you some con- uh, some idea of this. We are right now starting our textbook adoption for social studies at my school. The last textbook adoption was in 2005. 
it's been 17 years. Um, and, and so a lot of school districts missed that that window where textbook companies really kind of panicked, for lack of a better uh, phrase. And that, that may be a bit strong, and I apologize if it is to them, but they kind of panicked to how do we respond to this. The second thing that happened is that, and it goes to something that was discussed earlier, a lot of textbook companies went to almost like a, a parallel track of their uh, curriculum textbooks because cause that's where the money is. A lot of textbook companies have books that are specific, uh, kind of geared to and aimed towards the AP curriculum. Well, those couldn't afford to go to the Texas route because so much – and the AP curriculum is – you know, it's a it's it's a book in itself explaining exactly what concepts you have to cover in AP U.S. history. A lot of those are things that Texas was no longer interested in. So they would write a textbook that was sort of, it would say, for AP readers or for AP students. So you still have the opportunity to get a textbook that didn't have those uh, curricular issues. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, yeah. that, that's really Can I jump helpful. in with a Thank little you. I, I know that was... on textbooks, too, uh, before we go to Tim? Um, uh, Steve, are you familiar with the OpenStax textbooks? And I use textbooks I am not. Kind of loosely. Okay, that is out of Texas too, but it's out of Rice University. It is, and it's now flowing down to high school. It started for the college level, and both the um, regular college I teach at and the technical college is what I'm recommended to use, and I don't mind because it's free. And it is not something that the anti-critical race theory crowd would be happy with. It's a far more inclusive textbook, even though it's out of Houston, Texas, at Rice University. It's going to hurt the textbook companies because they won't make money, and it's going to hurt all these people that are against um, you know, their view, worldview because people are going to go, well, we're going with the free stuff because you know, that's a bunch of money saved, and this gets updated. Um, incredibly frequently, unlike a set of textbooks you buy. But I just thought that was pertinent to our textbook conversation. And I think that that's going to be kind of the wave of the future because, first of all, going digital instead of print makes sense to begin with on any number of levels. Uh, but the second part of it is is the ability to update. You know, we're using textbooks that talk of, that don't mention Barack Obama because he was still a state yeah. senator when the book was written. So, no, I think that is the direction that, gonna, that we're headed. I'm going to make a point before I pass it to Tim. This is how much this, these get updated. When I used it in fall for my class at Georgia Highlands, Raphael Warnock's picture was not in the book. When I used it in um, winter or our spring semester, his picture did get in there. It just uh, They just wanted to use a new senator, and he made the book, and that's how uh, quickly they're updated. So now I'll pass it to Tim for different questions. Tim? Oh, good evening, Steve. Thank you for being with us tonight. I want to talk to you about one thing only, and if you'll indulge me, I need to set up my questions for you by backing up, oh, about 15 years here, um, and go back to the Great Recession. Uh, I live in a very rural county. It's uh, economically a tier one county, the poorest county in the northwest part of Georgia. And obviously during the Great Recession, um, I, I don't know how it happened in other states, but in Georgia, uh, Catherine and David can both tell you that the cuts to education, to the education budget, were massive. Uh, at the state level, and, of course, that drifted down to the local level and really hit a county like mine hard. My local school board at the time, and we elect partisan school boards here, it, it was majority Democratic. They adopted a four-day school week for budgetary reasons uh, to help cut costs. And so for several years... Um, the opposition party actually ran against them uh, on, on that issue. And in 2018, uh, the Republicans took over the local school board and 
went right back to the five-day school week. Of course, it, it created upheaval each time it was done with parents trying to scramble their schedules and whatnot. But they discovered after a couple of years that, hey, they couldn't pay the bills. They they couldn't meet the budget either. So they went back to the four-day school week after they lost a couple of elections. Um, but now parents are scratching their heads about that a little bit. Instead of a 35-hour week, for instance, it's now a 30-hour week for students at school. They, there's no way they could make up the ex, the extra hours. And so parents are wondering, is this overall harmful to students? To students, uh, have have you ever had any experience with uh, four day school weeks? I know some other places like Texas that you that y'all talked about ha- has adopted that in a lot of places, and some other places around the country. What do you know about the four day school week, and is it harmful to students? Well, I my district personally, we've never done that. Uh, our tendency uh-huh. is to lay off teachers and just have larger class sizes. So you might have had 28 per class in history, you know, before the Great Recession, after you had 38, because you just mm-hmm. you lose a teacher, you don't hire a new one. But mm-hmm. it is harmful. It's harmful to everybody. You wonder why there's, you can't get quality teachers. Who's going to go work for 80% of what teachers used to make? Oh, but you get Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. Oh, so I can pick up a part-time job? You know, no no teacher, unless they're just locked in, is going to find that to be a very attractive alternative. Parents don't like it because now what are they going to do? Now, obviously, my two kids are 21 and 18, so they can fend for themselves. But if, if back in the day when they were, you know, seven and four, and now there's no school every Friday, well, my job's a Monday through Friday job. How am I supposed to handle that as a parent? And it's not mm-hmm. good for the students either because they're getting, you know, just do the math, right? They're doing, they're getting 80% of the curriculum or whatever it might be, 83% of the curriculum. So, no, it's mm-hmm. not good. It's, it, it's mm-hmm. just one of those alternatives that you have to do when you don't – you get the education you pay for. So a lot of these states brag about how lean their budgets are. Well, yeah, but the services are pretty damn lean too. And so mm-hmm. – that's yeah, oh, I know I know Kansas. Kansas had the four day week in a lot of and especially true in a lot of rural districts. Mm-hmm. What a lot of school districts have gone to do, and this is where it gets pretty bad as well, is and this is more germane to my area of California, is you start to get a return to segregated education of a sort, in that wealthier districts have these private education foundations that can raise mm-hmm. a ton of money and pay for the, the gaps in funding. So you're not going to see the 40 per student in the classroom. You're not going to see sports uh, being discontinued because they can't afford to budget for them and things like that. So you've got mm-hmm. School District A over here that is barely feeling the crunch at all because their parent community is holding fundraisers and raising millions of dollars, where you've got District B over here where they no longer have any summer classes and they no longer have PE because they can't afford to hire a separate PE teacher uh, at the mm-hmm. elementary level. I have seen that done. And uh, that's not just bad for the, for the physical health of the kids. It's bad for the teachers you leave behind because for those elementary school teachers, PE is the one part of the day that they get to plan and get the rest of their stuff ready for their kids. It's their planning period. And with that gone, they've got those kids from the second they show up to school till the second they leave. And it, it really does become a grind for those folks. So ultimately, we've never gone to the four-day week. I'm grateful for that because it's a terrible idea. Um, mm-hmm. In our state, we did go to a later start, but that wasn't about money. That was about a belief that it was better for the students to have a later start to their day and circadian rhythms and all that. So we did start that actually this year, but that was not a budget decision. I should say. Yeah. Even as the economy improved in Georgia, Steve, uh, the those in charge in this state uh, did not return all of the cuts that they had made. They they restored some, but not all. 
and it still left the county like mine in a position where basically we were between a rock and a hard place. We we have trouble attracting teachers to this rural county as it is in the best of times. And and we were kind of operating with a, I don't want to say a skeleton crew, but, but we didn't have a large group of teachers. We already had some pretty good class sizes and that sort of thing. Uh, and so, so we're left scratching our heads and wondering, well, if we're going to cut, what do we cut? I mean, so, so I really, um, you, you got any advice yeah. on, on what we could do? No, you know, though, I, I wish I did. I, I do, but yeah. no, it's, it's, it's a, a function of, you almost want to tell, and I know in those counties this isn't going to work, hire better people to your state legislature and hire better governors and state education commissioners and the like because the bottom line is you get the education you pay for. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Where it really gets hard is when you get to now we're going to have to make cuts that that really do hurt, whatever those yes. might be. You know? Yes. I, I know that those – moments are the toughest moments is when all of a sudden you're talking about, okay, here's a program that everybody loves. When well, say it's a marching band. Oh, we can't afford mm-hmm. it anymore. So we're not going to have a marching band anymore. Uh, we've seen mm-hmm. in our school district, that cut, which, which really was unfortunate was all the technical classes. So our mm-hmm. wood shop closed, our metal shop closed. Mm-hmm. And the rationale mm-hmm. for it was, well, there's a private program called Southern California Regional Occupation Center about five miles away from our school. Kids can go take those classes there. Well, that's great if they have transportation to get over there, which the school district to their credit right. did provide. But it's still half hour away, half hour back. It's a little more than five miles now that I think about it. But, uh, and it's not right on campus in the middle of their school day. And so, but that was what, you know, that was their unpleasant decision. It was that or the choir, that or the marching band. Uh, I'd say that or football, but even in California, they're not going to touch football. And they're definitely not going to do it in the summer. (laughs) Um, But um, which I'm grateful for because I had a kid who played and, and I'm good friends with our football coach, so I'm glad. But, you know, it is. You start making the choices that there's no good options left. You know, and that's one of the big myths about education is that there's this massive pool of fat that can be cut. Yeah, there is some, yeah. but it goes away pretty fast. And then you get into the real yep. decisions that are completely unpleasant. Yeah, and that's that's where we are. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David to close out the segment. David? Yes, and uh, Steve, uh, you say that they wouldn't cut football, but, but there were some systems in Metro Atlanta that cut middle school sports, including football, to save money. And I'm sure that county uh, got to pay every dollar they saved into the juvenile justice program because kids now at that very critical middle school age didn't have that supervision and mentors through all those programs, and they just went home where they might not have the supervision. And so uh, it was a terrible decision, but it, it has been done amazingly. And I'll make one more point about things I've seen. When I started teaching in 1994, there was more instruction at the elementary level in things like uh, foreign language and computers than there are now in most middle schools after uh, we went through a lot of those cuts. Some of those actually happened prior to the, um, uh, you know, the economic downturn in the mid-2000s. So it's, it's amazing. You thought in a 30-year career that you'd see more things happen, and we actually see less in some places, which is very sad. But, Steve, this has been a very interesting conversation. I definitely want to get you back on in the future to talk about politics and then maybe some more education issues and we do more of a mix in the future. Anytime, guys. Love love coming on. Love talking to you all. And, yeah, I mean, education and politics are about this closely connected. My hands are completely merged right now. So they're definitely – those are the two things I follow in life outside of my own family and, and their travails. So – Anytime you guys uh, need someone, you know where I am. All right. Thanks again. Thank you, sir. All right. Appreciate you guys. Have a great night. You too. That was Steve Sizinger. Um, 
educator, political expert out in Southern California. It was one of our favorite guests to have on. Uh, guys, we could probably spend about 25 seconds trying to cover the Georgia governor's race. And as we know, that race is getting closer. So I don't think 25 seconds would do it justice. Um, I'm not even sure 25 seconds to do the Alabama governor's race justice. So I think we're going to have to uh, speak on that race in, in a future um, show. And I'll go ahead and set up the next two shows just so people know what to look forward to. Um, the I guess the number one intern at Slow and Boring, Yale University student, Milan Singh, is going to come on next week. And I'll try to tell you all a story in the future about what a, a good accommodating guy Milan is. And he's going to come on and talk with us next week. And then the week after, we're going to get um, the first appearance um, in a, a quite a while, her probably longest hiatus from the kudzu vine, and Wendy Davis is going to uh, be our guest in the first show in October, and so we're excited about having Wendy on. So that's setting up the next two weeks. All righty. Yeah. Until next week, been the kudzu vine. Good night, guys. Thank you all. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still 